I did not come to play with you hoes. This is the Pop Talk Podcast with Callie and Emily, bitch. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Pop Tarts. Be me, me, me. The word feminist has a PR problem. She said, I'm a feminist, not the fun kind. Do you trust the environment that you're in? I love a taco. Taco's the best. What a great time to do local politics. Sure, they seem a little bit like second wave teachers' pets, but... I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We are both editors of Bust Magazine in Brooklyn, New York. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And today we're going to be talking about feminism in a big way. So brace yourselves, people. (laughs) In 2000, Jennifer Baumgartner and Amy Richards' book Manifesta, Young Women, Feminism, and the Future, was released as a chronicle of the third wave feminist movement that they were experiencing. The book has since become a classic of contemporary feminist literature, and the 20th anniversary edition will be hitting shelves March 10th with a new preface, an updated bibliography, an updated timeline, and a new resources section. Since writing Manifesta, Jennifer Baumgartner has written the books Look Both Ways and Abortion in Life. She directed and produced the documentaries It Was Rape and I Had an Abortion. And she's editor of the Women's Review of Books and publisher at Daughter Press. Amy Richards' other books include Opting In, I Still Believe Anita Hill, and We Are Makers. She is a producer of the documentary series Makers, Women Who Make America, and Viceland's Women. She's also a founder of the Third Wave Foundation, and together with Jennifer, she created Soapbox, a public speaker's agency for feminists, and Feminist Camp for students interested in feminist media. Welcome, Jennifer and Amy. Thank Thank you. you. We're so happy to have you here with us. Thanks. I'm just realizing you guys have such cool last names and first names, but the way your names go together with the one syllable and the both kind of music. It's about music, Rems. (laughs) Rems and Watts are on the case. (laughs) Oh, I like that. Totally. Should you each say your name so they know who's who? Sure. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Amy. Thank you. Yeah. I didn't want to interrupt. Good call, Callie. Why not? (laughs) Over here. One thing that I realized when I was reading Manifesto was that there's something that Jennifer, Callie, and I all have in common, and that is that we've all interviewed Bjork for Bust. (laughs) Wow. I found it to be the most challenging interview of my life. What about you guys? I I found it, it was a, it felt like a failure, but also a win because I got to interview Bjork and it was just kind of cool, but it was not, I didn't feel like I won her over. Let's put it that way. Nor did I. And I felt stupid because my my mom's side of the family is all Icelandic, or I, that's the way I think of them. But Icelandic American in North Dakota is not from Iceland. And so I sort of presented myself as Icelandic. And then she was speaking Icelandic. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know anything. I'm just, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm like farm North Dakota Icelandic. So that was also embarrassing. Callie, you got along with Bjork, right? When I interviewed her over email? That was over email. Oh, I thought you spoke with her. No. So that's oh, the key to a good interview. Do it oh, over I email. No, I had no follow-ups. And there, I, yeah. I was reading it like, what the fuck does this mean? This like reply mm-hmm. that. She hated me like poison. What, 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 what do you mean? Like, like, what did you vibe? Well, I knew, let me just say that I knew going in, Debbie wanted me to ask her about the swan dress. I did not want to ask her about the swan dress, but Debbie told me had to ask her about the swan dress. And it was a phone interview. And I did like sort of like, 
I didn't do it right off the bat, but I don't even remember what about the, it was. I tried to keep it open. Like people are really freaked out about that swan dress. Huh? What do you think about that? York. <laughs> and it was just silence and silence and silence and silence. And then, and she wouldn't speak. And then I asked her another question and she wouldn't speak. And I asked her another just wouldn't question. Say anything. It was just silence. It was just dead air. And then I kept cautiously asking anything I could possibly think of to ask until she answered again. What was the question that got, got her to answer? I don't again? remember, yeah. but it was it took a while. Oh my god. That's Mine was terrible. in person and I was about twenty five years old and I don't think I'd ever done a major interview. Or maybe I was like twenty when did when did bus start? It was one of their early issues. So. Ninety three. So, so it was, yeah, so like, I would have been twenty five. Uh-huh. It probably was ninety five or ninety four. And now, I, from what you're saying, I'm glad I was in person because we definitely were interacting and like the conversation was flowing. I just didn't, I think I came in there thinking, and at the end, we'll be friends probably or something. Yeah, totally. And that I mean, I always think that. <laughs> well, the three of us, now that we've been through that trial by fire, we can do anything. This is true. <laughs> Good point. It gave us our feminist bona fides as journalists. Uh, so Good pronunciation of bona fides. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, what compelled you two to team up to write Manifesta in? 2000 what did you hope it would accomplish at the time and now 20 years later do you think you guys accomplished those goals that you set out well we really set out to do it in around 97 i mean because it takes a while to write a book right and to get it out into the world and at the time it was shortly after jennifer interviewed bjork and we were sort of both in second wave feminism that's a real sort of shorthand for working at Ms. Magazine and working in Gloria Steinem's office and found that there was a lot lost in translation when talking about feminism historically and feminism contemporarily. And that was essentially like, if I'm going to boil down to the most basic form, that's what we set out to do is what did feminism look like in the, as we approach these newer decades. And I think we did a good job. And I think we've been surprised at how well the book has held up. This is our second time revisiting the books. We did it at 10 years and now 20 years. And very little has changed. I think the biggest change that we could not have predicted was the acceptability of non-heterosexual relationships and non-gender binary um, individuals. And the amount of participation among men raising kids. I think we're sort of like the two surprises that we would not have predicted. But women are still being raped. Their right to abortion is still being limited. There's still a lot of obstacles in the workplace. As far as like, as you were talking, I totally agree with everything Amy said, but I was thinking, trying to get back in my 27-year-old mindset. And I think I saw things in a more binary way back then too. I mean, not just gender binary, but I remember thinking that Amy was this seasoned activists. And that was this thing that I didn't know how to do. And I was this writer. And so we were coming together like Reese's Peanut Butter Cup, you know, smashing into each other. But during the course of, of writing the book, we kind of realized that the other person had the same skills in, in, in that other realm, but just maybe hadn't had the confidence or hadn't had the same experience or hadn't known how to uh, exactly label it that way. So that was, you know, on a personal level, a really cool thing that came out of that, that I'm not sure had, it, had we not been writing a book together, I'm not sure I would have had the same experience. So the book tackles some big fundamental questions about feminism. And I'm, I'm hoping that we can maybe revisit some just to see how you're feeling about these questions now. The, these questions are so big, they're even on the back cover. <laughs> so let's talk about them. Does personal empowerment happen at the expense of, po- of politics? What I usually say is that feminism has made more progress politically than we've made personally. Mm. Oh, I think it's true. And I think think that we're so much more likely to like wear the um, keep your laws off my body button 
and to sign the petition than we are to be like, oh, actually, I kind of do want to make that choice about my body and I do want to do this one thing. So, or I, more personally, I think in a lot of um, job places, we're like, tell everybody your salary. I was like, well, I'm not going to tell you my salary, really. So I think <laughs> yeah, that we right. sort of have legislated change much more quickly or adapted that legislative change much more than we have had it overflow into our personal lives. Yeah. And it, maybe it's that power piece that's still really feeling it. So we have these laws and you're meant to sort of eventually kind of shape into the powerful person, the empowered person, but the laws really can only do so much. Uh -huh. um, it's kind of amazing to me, even today, thinking about Harvey Weinstein being found guilty on two counts. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. um, two out of four. Four, not the two most serious in terms of, I mean, they're still very, very serious. Um, and how different that trial went than it would have gone three, four years oh, ago. Yeah. Um, and so there is some shifting going on with people being able to be honest about, and yet that still wasn't being empowered, I guess, in the way that would be my my hope for women in general mm -hmm. or people who are preyed upon sexually, it would be that in the moment to, to not have it be so confusing and feel so annihilating, like, oh, I want the attention from this powerful person or I need something, I need the job from this powerful person. And it seems like it's, no one's saying it, but it seems like it's wrapped up with this other thing I don't want to give. And so I'm sort of complicit somehow, but also that's not fair and, you know, and, or maybe it's even criminal. And so that, that untangling some of that, I think, hasn't happened. But the idea that somebody who um, was raped and then also had consensual sex afterwards, that that, which is most people's rape story, I mean, many, many people's rape story, let's say, it's very common. The fact that that would be out there in such a public way, is it does a public service in terms of educating the culture. So we, we're definitely going to return to Harvey Weinstein. I, I need to return to yeah, it. Okay. But let's, let's ask some of these bigger, broader questions first. Is feminism for the few or does it speak to the daily injustices faced by the many? And I feel like this is speaking especially to the, the intersectionality question. I think feminism has always spoken to the many, but it's the few that get the platform to interact with it. Uh-huh. And But I think in terms of if you look at the work that feminism does on a daily basis of working on laws, you know, working to make workplaces better, fairer, more just, working to have more women represented, I do think it's speaking to a wider network of people than any other social justice movement. But if you look at who are the leaders of the organizations and who gets on the news media and who gets to wear the I'm a feminist t-shirt, it's still you're looking at a pretty limited view of mm -hmm. feminism. And even just our feminist camp that we run, you know, we just call it feminist camp and we're not that selective of who we pick. And people come that say, I'm not sure I'm a feminist. I'm not quite sure. And it's not that they're unsure about the commitment they're making in their everyday life. They're not sure if they can kind of own that label yeah. and be the spokesperson back in Arkansas or back in, you know, Wisconsin. Yeah, there's a sense of purity yeah. that hopefully we're starting to shed. I feel like in a way it's gotten more heated up in terms of purity in some ways. Right. At the same time that I do think feminism that has become much more popular. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With the, everybody's got such an internet personality, so you get much more judged. I There's think. a lot more how dare you than I remember, but I think it's just that it's also more popular and we're just things are louder. But when we were writing Manifesto, we were, and for a long time after it came out, we were talking to people to help them understand that maybe they were part of it mm -hmm. as opposed to finding ways to, you know, exclude people based on, you know, mistakes they'd made or the fact that they didn't know the language or didn't. There's a lot of stuff around vocabulary and language that is really, I think, continuing to evolve and it, that can be very dicey for 
for making this movement inclusive. Mm -hmm. And what does it mean when we say the future is female? I feel like people angrily retort anytime anyone wears that shirt or says it or puts it online. Why can't we say it or can we say it? And what do we mean when we say it? Well, now I think it's so complicated because now it gets into the non-binary and right, what do we exactly. mean by female and aren't we all individuals? So I think the any dependence upon gender norms has become increasingly complicated to talk about. You know, can you be in all women's college? You know, can you be in all women's club? Sort of what does that look like and mean? I'm going to park that to the side for a second because I think that's not necessarily why people get angry at the future is female t-shirt. And I think that what people hear when they see the future of female is like, oh, we're going to go out and take all those jobs away from men. Like all those yeah. men that are in power, we're going to actually go in and unseat you from that position. And that's what feels so radical. What we're talking about is so much more radical, but I think people aren't even able to imagine it. It's like, no, we're going to reorganize the hierarchy of society. And it's not even going to be about um, board seats being half male and half female. It's going to be that the average worker has the power in the company, not the board member. And mm -hmm. and I think that when we when we say, I mean, a dedicated feminists say the future is female, I think we're looking at that more radical reorganizing of society. Um, but I don't think the average person has kind of like caught on to that's the end goal. I think they just see as like, oh, you're going to make 50% of the Senate female. What do you mm -hmm. guys think the future is female means? I feel like I'm sort of generationally in a Gen X mode in this way. In my mind being a woman actually means something like when i say i am a woman there are things that i mean by that and that there are certain experiences that that connotes to me and um if i'm in an you know i feel very precious about the dwindling number of all women's spaces that exist and i used to belong to a women's theater collective that became a women and trans theater collective which i'm cool with um, but there was a lot of talk during that time about whether or not to expand the definition of the place about like, well, does the word woman even mean anything? Mm -hmm. And to me, it does. But I understand that um, to radical fourth wave feminists, it might not. And I I feel like I've I'm OK. I'm OK that to them, it does not. And I see that as also being the future. Yeah. <laughs> so when I think of the future is female, I'm thinking of something that maybe a younger feminist isn't. And I have to, you know, just sort of find my way in that evolving culture. Yeah, I've been conflicted about the the push for the ERA and how much attention to give it. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. I think it is huge that women get included in the constitution. And I recognize already some complications with what that might look like in this era. One is that it it just continues to define men and women. And yet at the same time, if you're looking at the constitution and we're not ready to rewrite it entirely. And so I think that that's an example where you have to write women in because they're just not there and men are there by definition. And then we can get to the place of moving beyond the binary. But I think that in that mm. particular instance, we have to kind of name it in the document in the first place before we can unname it. There are material realities related to being a woman. And then there are, then there's everything else that we sort of load women right. with. Um, but I think those material realities are real and they would be, that's the, that's the element of having woman in the constitution that's meaningful. Yeah. We touched on this a little bit. When I think about this book, Manifesta is about third wave feminism to me. Now that we are 
the, the fourth wave has established itself. What do you guys see as the main differences between third wave and fourth wave? I know that we discussed intersectionality and the explosion of the gender binary. Those are the things that I see as the biggest, most obvious differences. What do you guys perceive as the, as the progression that it's made from third wave to fourth wave? I guess I see intersectionality as second wave. I mean, it pre- predates second wave, obviously, but I see it as a second wave theory that gained a lot of traction in academia when we were in college. I don't know how old you guys are, but we were in college in the late 80s, early 90s. And so people who were theorizing around intersectionality were the people that we read in our women's studies and gender, mm-hmm. gender studies classes, like bell hooks, et cetera. But I feel like it's much more prioritized. Um, yes. Well, the yes. word is used a lot. Well, yes, it probably has a lot more prioritized. In action, I feel like there's a lot more of it being called out and changed and you know, people are like, oh, yeah, yeah maybe we, the convergence you, of feminism and call out culture has yeah. made a, a new path for intersectionality. Somehow. But a lot of people use it interchangeably with diversity, absolutely, uh-huh. which I think also complicates what it really means because people think, oh, wait, I really want this to be an intersectional meeting. Like we're not being intersectional right now. And you're like, what do you mean? You know, yeah. and oftentimes what people really mean is like, oh, you're a bunch of white people. Right. Uh-huh. And. I, that that is related to intersectionality, but if you look at intersectionality, it's how you approach the issues, it's how you approach your identity, it's how you approach the issue in the context of your identity. It has um, to do with power and the overlapping structures of oppression that impact different communities in different ways. Mm-hmm. And so an intersectional conversation wouldn't just have the representation, as Amy's saying, it would have that understanding, that deep understanding of what that theory is. Mm-hmm. But I th- yeah, I think they go together though, and I think it's happening much more now that people are like, well, we're going to have like how we pay a lot more attention if we do a story to who the writer is mm-hmm. to like where are they from you know like will they relate to the you know to the person and who's 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 telling the story of another person of color or who's mm-hmm. telling a story of a person in a different country so we pay much more attention to that kind of stuff now than we did like 10 years ago i do i mean back to sort of the question about third wave fourth wave feminism in some ways, what we say in Manifesta is that what we were particularly labeling third wave feminism, we weren't there yet because mm. we hadn't achieved the goals of second wave feminism and that second wave feminism was about full legal equality. And we were talking earlier about the ERA and what that might look like either in the form of an ERA or in other laws. And what we were sort of marking a third wave feminism, it goes back a little bit to sort of the Weinstein conversation is like, when do you get to the point of really embodying the that set that sense of entitlement and taking up space and being able to sort of declare yourself um, worthy of whatever rights are before you and that real sense of sort of like I deserve this and I'm going to do this and I don't know that we have gotten that sense of the third wave yet even though I think we have different mediums out there that we sort of express our feminism and that points to kind of a new wave I'm not sure in terms of like actualizing feminism that we've evolved as much as we have right i think in my mind i i think about the the real active legislative demands of second wave and when i think of third wave i think about the real um mining of pop culture absolutely yeah to to make feminism relevant yeah and not just relevant but but Tasty. All, yeah, or just part of our part of our lives. I, yeah. I definitely believe that third wave feminism, the the culture piece, is the thing that seeded this moment that we're having right now, where everybody, a lot of people, perceive themselves and and, and proudly call themselves. Stands themse- in front exactly. of giant letters that say feminist. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or that Kobe Bryant has a memorial service, and like the three singers were 
women, strong, bold women, you know, that there is women have gained that cultural validation, mm-hmm. I think, that was lacking. You know, I mean, I look back all the time at Madonna and we had to constantly sort of justify why she was important. Like to why she was important. Yeah. yeah. And you <laughs> yeah, seem exactly. kind of silly too. Like when you look back and thought how much time you had to spend sort of defending, defending Madonna. And yeah. now you're like, oh my gosh, there's so many stars that are um, pop music stars that are out there. And there's also so many pop music stars that are paragon, are feminist icons who still to this day won't claim to be feminists. I'm thinking about Dolly Parton, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about Patti Smith. Thinking about Bjork. Mm-hmm. I think it's for people where it really kind of made their world smaller. Like it tinged. I mean, even when we were first writing Manifesto, we were writing against, again, and I know you felt this way at Bus somewhat too, writing against this cultural idea that feminism, that there was something kind of stinky and stupid about it, you know, and, and <laughs> retrograde and like mm-hmm. where mediocre people went or people who couldn't like get other things to, you know, be in other spaces. And um, so I think that women older than us carry even more of that, you know, just subconsciously. That's a, a something that was definitely in Manifesta and something that's a reality in our lives at Bust, that just the fact that the word feminist has a PR problem mm-hmm. and how do we counteract it? And is the PR problem just an arm of the patriarchy that we're swimming upstream against? Or is there something that we can do to make it embraceable? Well, I think being uncompromising, which you have been at Bust and you have been as individuals, and I think that we have been in our work, and being true to we're feminists, we're not just promoting women. I mean, it's amazing. We try to go out there and sell feminist camp and try to get sponsors, and I'm sure this is like getting ads for Bust. They don't it's like amazing. No, they don't like the word. It's amazing how they try to convince you that like it'd be so much better if it was a women's empowerment camp, and you're like, no, it wouldn't be. Then, <laughs> and I do worry that you know it goes back to that thing. If you stand for everything, you stand for nothing. You know, and I think that feminism, as hard as it is for some people to sort of get, you know, behind, it's better that the people that are behind it are really behind it. Yeah. I think the bust, and I think Amy and I do this too, uh, and this is very third wave in my opinion, but I need to think more about these distinctions we're making, but but I'm going to go out on a limb and say the third wave thing I think is to resolve a lot of these polarities and to integrate them. Mm-hmm. And so bust... I remember feeling so happy that there was fashion and all of these other things that I was into, but it had become sort of secretly into once I started working in Ms. Magazine. And then suddenly I could be integrated, like I could be a feminist and also really care about fashion or really like love Madonna or like, you know, not know where my clitoris is yet, but want to know, you know, or whatever. <laughs> like there's like these, there were these elements of, um, of, of getting to, to be like a whole person and not throw everything out. There was that Do Me Feminism article um, in like 93 or 42 that was like, it was a big, it was like, so this big article in like GQ or something. About these sex Or Esquire, positive about these feminists. sex positive, yeah, like third, <laughs> oh. you know, going to be what we would later call third wave feminists, but Gen X feminists, I guess. And then I remember Andrea Dworkin, who I loved and, and I have a lot of regard for her work and everything she stood for. She said, I'm a feminist, not the fun kind. And I thought that was such a <laughs> great line. And also I was sort of like, I'm sort of the fun kind. I'm like, all the fun kind. Yeah, I want there to. I want to be like that Bjork thing. Why suffer? You know. Yeah, so. but I think in this climate, there's so many fun feminists that now I want to be the not fun. Not one. fun. <laughs> You're like, I wear my top. Well, just because I think that it it became a moniker that people kind of attach themselves to in the last couple of years, without and 
that knowing the history of it, and not that everybody has to know their history, they come to it at different points, and I get right. that. But I'm not sure that everybody that's using the label is willing to do the hard work that goes along with it. It's so like that's modern what... artists who haven't uh, done their classical work first, <laughs> yeah, before departing. You can't just spray paint the the canvas and then think that you're the artist, right? I get it. And now I'm ready to return to Harvey Weinstein. Let's. <laughs> um, so we we talked about how. As we're recording this, Harvey Weinstein's verdict was just announced this week, and he was found guilty of criminal sex act and rape. His sentence will be somewhere between five to 25 years. We'll see how that shakes out. It feels like a landmark moment in the Me Too movement, especially because the the women pressing the charges weren't what they call, quote unquote, perfect witnesses, that both of them had complicated relationships mm-hmm. with him that involved a mixture of of rape and then consensual sex, as we we mentioned. And the fact that he, they were able to get guilty verdicts on two of the four charges and not be that quote unquote perfect rape victim, I think really shows how far we've come with the media movement. Yeah. But at the same time, I really felt like the media around it and the defense of him was really in itself a backlash against the Me Too movement and like sort of a a platform for people to discuss how the Me Too movement has gone too far. I'm thinking specifically about Weinstein's lawyer, Donna Rattuno. I don't know if you heard that interview that she gave to the New York Times that yeah. they recorded mm-hmm. on the Daily. She's she was based, and it was almost like a throwaway. Like the interview was done, and then they went back to her and they were like, wait, one more thing. Have you ever been raped? And she said, no, because I would never put myself in that position to be raped. Basically, echoing what a lot of people say that if women want to be treated equally, if women want to be feminist, then they, then women need to have some, they need to take responsibility for their actions. They need to take responsibility for going into a powerful man's hotel room. They need to take responsibility for being alone with a person who's able to overpower them. They need to take responsibility for drinking alcohol. Like, I think it, I think it takes a lot of confidence to have a business meeting and have this person say, "Oh, let's you know, let's just go in here for a second, blah, blah, and to have the wherewithal to say, "No, I don't want to go in there," you know, into your hotel room. I think I think a lot of it is is going along to to not because you don't want to overreact, and that happens mm-hmm. a lot in Women sexual are assault. Such people pleasers. Yeah, I think we've been socialized not to like overreact. We talk. I mean, the the victim thing because I want to go back to Chanel Miller, which was yes. like two and a half years, three years before this. This is the Brock Turner case, right. uh-huh. and she was a quote perfect victim. It meaning that there were witnesses, there was DNA evidence, there you know people interrupted it, and he got what twelve months, and then of that he served eight months, and yeah. so. Even if we have better victims, Mm -hmm. we're still not going to get better outcomes. Completely. And the thing that I think people paid attention to with the, and and first of all, I just want to say, I'm so glad you used the word landmark moment because there were so many blasts I saw yesterday that used the word win. And I feel like, I don't know if I really feel like this is a win. Like, the fact is, like, women had to go through a lot of fucking shit or get here. And and we'll still have to because he didn't get the maximum sentence. And so people will say, I mean, we still have a California case to see. Mm -hmm. But people will say, see, it wasn't, he wasn't, you know, a serial predator. And right. So I'm, I just anyway I like the word landmark because I do think it's a moment to mark that there was somebody convicted the the evidence was not as perfect as it could have been mm-hmm. and I think we paid attention in part because all of a sudden the victims were people that we otherwise wanted to be 
Right. Historically, mm-hmm. victims have always been women that we don't want to be and that we want to distance ourselves from. And it does sort of illuminate that like you could be anybody and this could happen to you. And so hopefully that's the, that's the real mm-hmm. win here is that shift in consciousness. Mm-hmm. I feel like it educated the juries or this jury educated was clearly educated properly by the moment and hopefully we'll be educating other jurors with the idea that this this is what sexual assault looks like and that right. after a trauma, people do often try to normalize it by having a more normal interaction. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think we're just very at the very beginning of really kind of understanding that. And I think there's other elements of the male rapist piece of this that are that we're just sort of barely scratching at the surface, too, um, that that, I you know, hopefully we'll continue to improve as a, as a culture. The moment I look back on more is the um, Louis C.K. with Because mm-hmm. I do think it'd be complicated if somebody was like, come to my hotel room. And you'd be like, oh, I, I don't know what to do. Like, what's the right thing? And it wouldn't be, come to my hotel room so I could rape you. It was like, let's continue this, as right. Jennifer said. I think the Louis C.K. one's a little bit more interesting to me if I was there with a work colleague and he said, I'm going to jerk off now. Would have been like, I guess so. But you know that I'm going to live tweet this or you know that I'm going to put this on social media or that one's a little bit, for me, clear about what I would have done. I might have stayed in the room, but I would have totally used that information for my own well, I think they were concerned because he he was going to get them blackballed from shows. Yes. And he did. Yeah. But there, we, you know, like this happens with us because we're journalists and we travel around and like in all different industries, like some of the Harvey Weinstein attacks happened when someone was like they were at Cannes or something. Mm-hmm. It was like in a hotel, all these hotel suites yeah. like um, with Louis C.K. was at a comedy festival where like everybody's office was their hotel room, essentially. Like if you right. were going to meet with a powerful person to like hang out and network and do whatever, then like often it's at their hotel room. I was just thinking about it two weeks ago. I was on the um this disco cruise and I was interviewing cool. women um vocalists from the 70s. And one of um my interviews got interrupted by a 12-step meeting that needed the room. So we just went back to my hotel, my sh- shipboard hotel room to do the Your interview. state room. My state mm-hmm. room, if you will. Luscious Logan and I, we brought this vocalist back to our room to conduct the interview, and it was totally above board. But we did the interview on the bed because it was a tiny stateroom, and that's where you do it. And, you know, I just couldn't help but think, like, if something untoward had happened to this lovely woman, and people said, well, why did you go back to that journalist's room? Like, you didn't know who those people were. I mean, we used to do the whole podcast in a guest bedroom. That's right. When we started this podcast, a a gentleman who had his own podcast company was like, come to your podcast in my guest bedroom. Any of the guests. That's right. But we were inviting strangers into a bedroom every time we recorded. And nothing happened. Lots of people use rooms with beds in them for professional Mm -hmm. reasons. Oh, I, you know, I work in an all women's office and there's many times where all sort of like, you know, yesterday a colleague of mine, her grandfather died and I felt like I had to say, I want to give you a hug. Is that okay? Whereas historically I just have been like, I feel so sorry. And it's, it's, and I don't, I don't know that I needed to be on alert, but I feel on alert. Yeah, I do ask before I hug a lot more now. Sometimes I still hug people and then be like, oh, I'm sorry. I should have asked. Yeah, I have that same thing where I think I called uh, Noelle, who's maybe 19 or 20, and I'm almost 50, who was working with me in January. And I think I called her dear at one point. And I was like, really worried (laughs) and paranoid for a second that she was going to be like, that was extremely condescending and don't. And also too familiar. And I don't know, it was really, and it was something where I think I used to have a real loose. And I think it's okay to have to be a little bit more on our guard and, and establish these things with words. Like, yeah. is it okay that I, you know, 
I still have a really bad in, a habit of calling groups of people dude. Mm. Y'all, that wouldn't I bug me, saying. but but I know it does. I bug know people. it does bug some people, and then I'm like, God damn it, I keep I doing it. I also call people dude. Do you ever feel bad about it? No, never. But I probably <laughs> now that you've raised. I mean, dude seems sort of universal, but maybe I'm right. I mean, deluding I, there myself. are groups of people I know I can do it away at and nobody will be offended. But then when it's like people I don't really know, then I'm much more conscious of duding around on them. Like if I'm at like a party with strangers, I don't think I would just walk up and be like, excuse me, dudes. Well, it comes you know? down to trust, you know, and like what do you trust the environment that you're in? And mm-hmm. and hopefully if, you know, I was at your party and you were dude and I was like, you know what? I really don't like that term. Right. Then I'd be like, my bad. But that I found a way to say it <laughs> right. and say mm-hmm. it respectfully. To your face. Right. Yeah. And that maybe I even had my own learning curve in it. It was like, that's just how I've always used it. Okay. Well, then let me think about it differently. Yeah. So we should be able to say dude if we want or not or object to it. And we should be able to do our business in a room with a bed in it or not and not have there be an (laughs) expectation of sex or assault. Well, I was away with a teacher last year with a group of 17 high school girls and there was supposed to be a female teacher and a male teacher, but the female teacher couldn't come at the last minute. And the the female students who were all high school students about day three or day four, they kind of started complaining about the male teacher because they didn't find him like soft enough and like or welcoming enough. And I said, he can't. Like, if you need a Band-Aid, I had to give them the Band-Aid. And it was – and I bring that up because I actually think it was pedagogically having an effect on the students. Mm. And it was changing the dynamic. And he and I had this long conversation about, as a white male, was he even allowed to teach certain texts in class now? And what were the effects of that? And he was being sort of, you know, challenged on, how dare you teach Toni Morrison? Mm. And I do worry at a point, like, and and again, maybe mm. we just have to change what a classroom learning environment is. But if students feel like they're not getting the best out of their teacher, and I mean that more in the sort of like they can't give you a band aid, and he can't sort of ask how your day is, you know, then you know, how do we create those ground rules so we can be a little bit more comfortable in that space without making people feel that's really predatory? Yeah. You too have a long successful business partnership, not just as co-authors, but also as owners of the Feminist Speakers Bureau Soapbox and as the creators of Feminist Camp, how do you make your professional relationship work? What advice do you have for other friends who want to grow professionally together? Well, I feel like we, I have to acknowledge that Amy has been running Soapbox pretty much solo for quite a while. So maybe yeah, that's we how. Still, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've always done different things. And I yeah. think going back to what Jennifer said about when we first wrote the book together, I think we respected that we each were bringing something unique to the entity mm-hmm. and kind of holding on to that. And I do think like of all the qualities that there are things that you list about people that you're attracted to and that you appreciate being around, I do think respect is like the number one thing is like, do I respect what they're doing on an individual basis and mm-hmm. what what they're for, what they're bringing to this? And, you know, I do think, yes, doing other things and being um, needing each other without being dependent upon each other. Because I think that when I have seen relationships really sour, mm. and I mean mostly business relationships mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. partnerships in that way, it's when I think one person didn't acknowledge it, but that they were sort of expecting too much of the other person. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it could be that they're an extrovert and the other person's an introvert. It could be that they had more money and they were bringing that to the table, but that that wasn't transparent. Business partnerships, that I, where I've seen best, best friends or close friends start businesses, a lot of them have eventually really blown up. Um, so I think all of that energy and intimacy that you bring as friends 
again, because you're, you make a lot of assumptions probably without actually having a structure, mm-hmm. I think can also be be hard. And so I really think people should you know start businesses together and it's like a really business and writing and all that stuff is lonely. And so it's great to be able to do it with someone. And I know it had an, a totally important effect for me, but that's the piece I think that if somebody if somebody was like ask really asking me for advice, I'd say, okay, well make sure that you still have like systems in place and stuff like that and mm-hmm. you know, ways to, you know, understand the actual business and you know. <laughs> yeah. ground rules. Or yeah, something. exactly. Something. Some sort of I'm now going to ask you a totally self serving question. So brace <laughs> yourselves for that. Uh, as scholars of the feminist movement, what do you see as Bust's impact on feminism? <laughs> what do you remember about interviewing our our founders, Debbie and Lori and Marcel from the book and, and how are we viewed in your feminist circles? Even if it's not the best we want, I want to know, but I also hope that it's, there are some nice things. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think bust when it first started, Amy was working in Gloria's office and I was at Ms and I was really, and it was just the first issue was just a Xerox staple thing, Mm -hmm. but I was totally electrified. And we thought that uh, Debbie and Marcel and Lori were so incredibly cool. and I think that's reflected in, in the book and the way that we, we talk about them. But I also think there was, I felt like we were really trying to help people understand how they could be very political too. And so we were really erring on that side a lot in the book when we talked about our peers, because we thought our feminist peers were building this cultural thing and we wanted to like mash all that together. And so I think in a way, I mean, I would definitely say the bust impact is enormous and maybe in the book in a way that I wouldn't necessarily do in conversation or need to feel the need to do. I think we were also a little critical of certain elements of like, I just remember, I don't think it was necessarily about bus, but there was a lot of like, okay, if you're a girly, you know, don't waste that nail polish unless you're going to fight for the, pe-, you know, like there was a lot of that kind of stuff. defined yeah. as girly with a capital yeah. G in the yeah. book. Well, and that was a really big way that it was, that bus was identifying itself a little bit at the time too. I mean, maybe we, you know, calcified it too much because writing this book that ended up being taught a lot in women and gender studies classes. But I remember, uh, I mean, I remember the review in Bust, which also had a really great line, was like, sure, they seem a little bit like second wave teachers' pets, but, you know, there's sort of this thing. So I felt like it was like, you know, there was an interplay. But I also think, I mean, Bust, Bust personally pushed me a lot in my feminism, and I really respect you for that. I mean, as I already said, I'm not hugely sort of immersed in pop culture, and so I've really appreciated Bust both educating me, but just also pushing me in my thinking. And even when we were writing Manifesta, there's lots of ways where we could just boil it down to painting nail polish in the room. But what was going on was so much more radical and what Bus was calling for, which was that, and this goes back to our conversation about gender, is that being a girl is actually a really fierce, amazing thing. Right. And we should own that and not feel like, because at the time it was wearing like midriff t-shirts, that we're made to feel less smart. If we're wearing that T-shirt, you know, we can be just as smart regardless of what we're wearing. And so Bust has kind of always held that standard of being a girl is good. I mean, that's an oversimplification. And I think that in many ways it was ahead of its time. It's weird that that's still kind of a radical thing to say. Yeah, (laughs) but it is. Yeah. (laughs) And the other thing that I think Bust, I mean, I will say I remember, you know, you know, I mean, I do remember us like fighting with Debbie, not really fighting with Debbie, but about sort of things like arguing in a healthy way. Um, But I think the end result was just a stronger feminism. And I do know that we definitely get a lot of feminist campers from Bust. I mean, that have heard about Bust and then they want to meet at Bust when we, 
you know, when we do our feminist camp. So it's definitely still out there. I ran into somebody on the way here who's like a 27-year-old media person at a major nonprofit, a non-white woman. And I said, she says, where are you going? And I said, bus. She says, bus is in here? I love bus. Oh, so, nice. you know, it's continuing to speak to younger generations and diverse generations because I'm sure you've been accused of being sort of a white, you know, media yeah women's, you know, magazine and limited in that way. And I think that you have enough to stand by that disproves that. Hey, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I think Debbie is really brilliant. I've always been pushed a lot by what she has to say and the way she sort of, I've never even, this is like a terrible thing to admit. I've never even read The Second Sex, but I know she has. And I think the way that she translates that into bust um, made it so it was digestible to me. Mm-hmm. And it definitely gave me back, as I've said, gave me back something that I really wanted from feminism she definitely has like the big picture in mind mm-hmm. yeah always and Lori's aesthetics are amazing in the way and i appreciate that bust cares about aesthetics it made me feel like that mattered as well yeah and it makes it us not pretty magazine yeah feel bad about wanting something that looks lovely Right. Well, yeah, I mean, you're craftacular. Being... I mean, I think you also started things. And even the way you included men, I mean, you just did as men we love. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you did it seamlessly and relatively easily. I feel like the way everybody else sort of includes men is like, we're going to make you the man of the year and we're going to really overdo how much we appreciate you. And almost like we, we need you for our own benefit. But you're like, no, we just want you to be here because it's fun and you're doing the same things we are. So I also think you've expanded yeah. our sense of feminism in in many ways and not been there's too many places that take feminism too seriously and i think it's been nice to have sort of a lighter like you can just say men we love we don't need to say more than that yeah (laughs) yeah truth um so how has your own feminism evolved and grown and changed in the last 20 years as a result of all this work that you guys have done have are you different feminists now than you were than when when you wrote this book i'm definitely much more confident about articulating things that I'm really thinking and, and getting to call that feminism. I think I used to, when, when we were first writing Manifest, I remember we'd be like, are we sure this is what feminism is? You know, like, we, like as if there was some sort of, you know, needed a stamp of approval from someone. And, and so. Well, you guys are both tight with Gloria Steinem. So if you needed one, that so, would yeah, be a good like, place fact to check. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, and that, that was helpful that she was so generous with that, with reading the manuscript, honestly, it was really helpful. Um, for that kind of confidence. But the confidence for me really came from once we started touring and having to stand up for what we were saying. And so, but I actually think my feminism is probably just totally the same. Yeah. I feel, I mean, if anything, I feel a little bit more, I, I was probably the person in college or right out of college that would say like, we have to stop rape now. And now I realize like what an unhelpful slogan that is <laughs> because it's just not going to happen now. We're not going to stop it by saying it should be stopped. And so just getting a little bit more systemic and sort of how these problems evolve and therefore how you tackle them, mm-hmm. that it's not the big stamp of approval. It sort of is like the little details that go along. And um, I would also say, I mean, echoing Jennifer on the confidence, I do mm-hmm. think just being able to kind of say in an eye voice rather than a, well, I once read this article in Ms. Magazine that said that this should happen. And so maybe we want to talk about that happening. You know, rather now you go in and say, this I happen. have an idea. Yeah. Yeah. What are your hopes and your dreams and your goals for 2020? What's on your vision board? And do you have any specific thoughts you'd like to share on our election? Oh, my gosh. That's uh, 
Well, one, I, I mean, I'll, I'll just say about the election. I think that regardless of what happens in the election, like feminist work continues. I mean, I, you know, the day after the election, the last time around, I was, I had to city bike up in the morning and I was at like 730 and people were crying and people were, and I, I oddly felt, I both felt defeated, but I actually felt really empowered because I felt like that's why we do this work. And what I was going to do on that Wednesday was no different than the work I was doing on Tuesday. Mm. And we're in this work for the long haul, regardless of, and I thought, oh my gosh, what a great time to do local politics. And so <laughs> yeah. I do think don't treat the political system like what happens in November in the federal election. You know, elections are happening all the time and and be a part of it in those all of those ways. And in fact, the elections, the election that I'm I'm personally following the most is Amy McGrath in Kentucky mm-hmm. against Mitch McConnell, because yep. there's yeah, nothing would ha- make me happier oh, than to take so that man out of office. Stop McConnelling around. And I do know from my <laughs> own work is like you have to kind of go where local. Yeah. I feel you know, when we were gonna talk about what we watch on TV, I feel like I'd be really happy to not be watching the debates or thinking about them or having people talk to me about them. Not, not you two, but <laughs> other people. Um, I find it really is kind of inane and it really gobbles up all of our energy. And, and as Amy was saying, it's sort of like, I don't know that it has that big picture impact. Mm-hmm. Even when I listen to the candidates and I like a lot of them a lot, make their kind of claims about why they should be president. I'll be like, that's not even what the job is. Like the things <laughs> that you're talking about are not even what's going to happen the day you, if you're lucky enough to become president or unlucky enough to be president. So um, I, I start to find it really tedious and kind of almost like it is a reality TV show that we've all become um, addicted to because um, it, has, it has more energy because Trump is so crazy, you know? Yeah. Right. Um, on my vision, oh, Sorry. my visioning board, because um, that was the other half of your question. Yes. I want to do a movie about Zora Neale Hurston. And yes. I want to kind of bring that into fruition in the next. And I've got some meetings over the next couple of days and I we'll see what that so is. Much. And then this weekend, which this will probably come out after this weekend, um, I'm producing something at Manette Lane Theater, which is called In Love and Struggle. And it's at the intersection of African American History Month, Black History Month, and Women's History Month. And it's centered on Black women's voices. It's being creatively produced by Rebecca Carroll of WMIC. And um, it's a part of a partnership that I've explored with Audible. And I'm excited to see what else that might bring to fruition in the next year. Oh, that's exciting. That sounds awesome. Yeah. I've, I want you to make the Zora Neale Hurston project so much. I um, read Zora for the first time, like I want to say like five or six years ago, maybe. Um, maybe it was a little more. Like, do you remember there's like that BinderCon? Did you ever mm-hmm. hear yeah. about BinderCon? <laughs> so it, it's a, it was a conference for women writers and I went to it and a panelist, some panelists were talking about like their required reading lists. And one of them mentioned um, their eyes were watching God and I jotted it down. It had never been assigned to me in any class ever by any teacher in my entire life. Nobody had ever told me to read it before. And I read it and it became probably my favorite novel that I've ever read. And I was furious (laughs) that waited so long to read it. And I've been, you know, like reading her other works slowly since then. But I just feel like, there's if I, if that happened to me, then there's got to be other people mm. who need to know that she's literally the best. Mm-hmm. And that said, I honestly feel like we wouldn't have been ready for her before now. Right. You know, she was such a strong black woman. And I'm not sure that people would have appreciated that. I mm-hmm. think that there would have been a lot of people who were challenged by that. And so I think that there's a reason. The members of the Harlem Renaissance certainly were challenged. Yes. No. Yeah. And and. I and it was precisely because she was a woman, I think, and she understood her race and ethnicity, and she came from an all-black town. I mean, there's a lot there. That there's a lot there. What's on your vision board, Jennifer? Gosh, 
Um, well, so I started this book publishing imprint a few years ago. And so the books that are coming out, and it's sort of like fashion, you're always working like 18 months in advance mm-hmm. and in the opposite season that you're in. And um, so the books that are coming out, I'm I'm trying to envision like where they fit into the into the space. And um the children's books, there's one that's coming out that's about incest. It's a middle grade book. Wow. Oh wow. And I think the approach is really honest and powerful and what people who've had that experience need as opposed mm-hmm. to something that's, that simplifies it or flattens it out. And it's sort of like good touch, bad touch. And, you know, of course your feelings about that person afterwards is you hate them, you know, or whatever, when in fact the, the reality is, is, is different. And so I want that, the pain of that, that reality to be exercised or there's to be some catharsis because of this book. And I think that children's books are, are really important in that mm-hmm. way or books are in general. And then there's a book, a memoir by this woman who's really cool named Bette Williams, who's um, grows or she grew. I have to say that for legal reasons. She used to grow um, psychedelic mushrooms oh. um, in New Mexico, and she has a really kind of beautiful theory, unified theory about it and how to practice in a way that isn't just culturally co-opting indigenous people, but is in fact supporting that knowledge and using it, using it the way that they're telling her to use it as opposed to trying to make a, a drug and make a million dollars to have a new kombucha drink that has mushrooms in it or whatever. <laughs> right. Well, we're going to take the briefest of breaks. When we come back, we ask Jennifer, we ask Amy, we ask Callie. Hopefully, maybe Callie will ask me, what you watching? Hey, podcast fans. Did you know that the best place to listen to your favorite shows ad-free is Stitcher Premium? They've got Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, My Favorite Murder, Wolverine The Lost Trail, Bitch Sesh, The Fantasy Footballers, Science Rules with Bill Nye, and more, all without commercial interruptions. And we can hook you up with a sweet deal. Get one month free, go to stitcher.com slash premium, and use promo code POPTARTS. That's stitcher.com slash premium, promo code POPTARTS. Before we get back to the show... I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be. And you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes. And tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Uh, essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious. And I knew would make great podcasts. And every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have a docket. We all have a docket. Sex. Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. (laughs) Scams. I'm Caitlin I'm Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love, love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German-Russian heiress, and she seems like she has a lot of money, and people buy it. 
That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. Which Amazing. Was so smart. I mean, so like smart. To, I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. And we're back. I want to know what you watching. And when I say what you watching, it is a broad question. It encompasses all pop culture, movies, television, books, music, music videos, podcasts. If you are consuming it pop culturally, we want to know about it because it is probably cool. Let's start with Jennifer. What you watching? Um, <laughs> I'm watching Curb Your Enthusiasm from the beginning. Oh. And then when the new ones come out, I, I tuck them in. So they come out, I guess, on Sundays. And, it's so good this season. And I'm also watching, I mean, I watched Fleabag last year, of course. I oh, thought that, yeah. was, that was one of the most gratifying TV experiences I've ever had, in part because it didn't go on forever. It was just the two seasons. And I really, I'm realizing how much I want that. I want that closure, <laughs> not that sort of like that spread. Um, and then the two books, Minor Feelings, which is about to come out. Kathy Hong Park, I believe is the author's name. She's a poet. And then Females, Andrea Long Chu. Did you guys review that? It's uh -oh. really good. And that's a really, really short book. I read it in like 45 minutes. What's it called? Oh, females. Yeah. Females. Okay. Oh. And it's a verso book. I think the subtitle is A Concern or something <laughs> like that. Amy. What you watching? Oh my gosh, we're watching. So I was at Sundance a couple weeks ago. Damn. So I caught up a lot. Of, I watched a documentary about Aggie Gund, and which specifically sort of talks about many things in her life, but about her selling this Lichtenstein painting for $165 million and giving $100 plus million of it to Art for Justice, which is a five-year spend down that's going towards criminal justice in America. I mean, making awesome. you know, it's dent and going away. I also watched three of the four hours of the Hillary documentary, which will be out on Hulu any mm. moment now. Yeah, and, worth it. And I... I Loved it. I, it's not going to make any non-Hillary fans fans, I feel like, because it's her very transparently. Um, interesting watching it in the midst of an election cycle mm -hmm. where Bernie is another major figure. You know, she, at one point, her campaign's really trying to get her to just say that she's for healthcare for all. And she says, it's unrealistic. We can't be healthcare for all. We can get there slowly, but we're going to have to. And like, just say you're for healthcare for all. And she's like, no, I can't. That's lying to the American people. And so it's interesting where it lands now and how much people can say sound bites and not be asked to substantiate them. Mm. Um, so that was interesting. And then uh, mm. the Taylor Swift documentary was another. Oh, I loved it. Loved it. And I'm I'm not really a fan. I'm not not a fan. I just hadn't. No. I, same. Taylor Swift and out there. I didn't really. Yeah. But and now I think it's so genuinely. I really like it. And her. she kind of opens her life up and sort of says, this is who I am and I'm going to stand for something. Um, so that was interesting. And um, I have two teenage boys who are into sports. And so I intentionally read a lot of sports, like Sports oh. Illustrated, like Premier League Soccer and Basketball, NBA. And so I read the New York Times sports section a lot. I also – they also – um, I listened to the Serial podcast recently on Tupac and mm, I Biggie. To and um, so I'm sort of going out of my way to sometimes have talking points with my kids. Um, but it's I actually, like it. I mean, I the Sports Illustrated had this huge cover story on the LA Clippers. And 
in about how LA is going to be the healthiest city and Clippers. Anyway, and that the GM, one of the GMs is a woman and the head of innovation at the NBA is a woman. And so I'm finding that I started out on this path because I wanted to kind of like feel like I had something to talk to my boys who were interested in this in. And I realized that there are people that I have found inspiration. I mean, I've Sabrina, who made that NCAA championship today, and I watched her speech at Kobe Bryant's memorial yesterday, and I thought she was the best speaker, hands down, not knowing anything about her before. So have been surprised that I go on these sort of mainstream bends, and then I find feminism waiting for me. Oh, I really like that. Yeah, <laughs> you surprised me. Callie, what you watching? Uh, oh, I'm watching Good Girls. It's back. Right. I know I love that show. What is it? It's these um these women that end up they're all like down on their luck money wise, and they rob. I've actually watched it with my younger son too. I love it. <laughs> they rob a grocery store, and then they get like a shitload of money. But then they have to wash the money. I like um, the acting in it too. I think they're phenomenal. Yeah, they're great. Also, I really appreciate in this season they're getting very crafty. They're making their own paper to print money on. <laughs> From the pulp, which I was like, oh. can we do that as a craft and bust? <laughs> yeah, oh my god, DIY yeah, counterfeiting. <laughs> I, I'm watching High Maintenance. That's all oh, it's back yep. on HBO. And then, uh, oh, Curb. So I'm watching that, the Trump hat episode. Yeah, where um, what's his face just wears this Trump hat the whole time, so people won't talk to him. I know, and Do- I saw Donald Trump thinking that he <laughs> was actually endorsing him by doing. Oh that. my god, that that part was hilarious. And then there was like. The Jeff Gerlin character kept getting uh, mistaken, mistaken for, for Harvey, Harvey Weinstein. Weinstein. Oh, and no. then it was kind of shocking. She's like, "You do look a lot like I him." I know, and I was like, "That's such an unfortunate joke, though." Yeah. Somebody told me I look like Harvey Weinstein. Okay, that's what I've been watching. What have Great. you been watching? I've been watching this terrible, wonderful, weird show um, called "Love Is Blind" on Netflix. A oh, lot I heard of that's women really I know are watching good. it. It's it's I heard it's so like as good as weird. The yes, it's um. So the premise of the show is: Is love blind? Nick Lachey and his wife put literally 30 people into a a speed dating like ex- lab. And so there's all of these pods where you can talk to someone through a frosted pane of glass, but you cannot see the person. And so they have all of these singles. I think in order to be in the show, you have to literally be wanting to find someone to marry, ready to get married. So out of like, 30 people speed dating for 10 days like all they do is like interact with people in pods all day every day for 10 days and then out of that um i want to say six or seven couples emerged after 10 days wanting to marry each other sight unseen and then they see each other and then for another 10 days they roll around in uh Playa del Carmen, Mexico. And some of them like just like jump right into coitus and others are just sort of like getting to know each other in the physical realm, not going all the way. And so then like after another 10 days of rolling around in Mexico, then they're set up in a apartment complex. There's like then there's like it's down to five couples and they're all set up with apartments for another 10 days to see. And they're given their like phones back and they're given they're like they have to meet each other's families and they go back to work and sort of seeing if like they still feel like they want to get married in this weird apartment complex and then at the end of those 10 days that's a month and at the end of that month they get 
they walk down the aisle and then you find out they're at the wedding in front of all of their friends and family if they actually are going to go through with the wedding or not. And insane. I was like, do they get a timeshare out of this? I mean, what's the... They've been like, um, you know, just sort of like releasing the... It's not the normal Netflix thing where they dump it all at once. They've been doing it a little at a time. And so now, while at the time that we're recording this, they haven't done the final part where you find out who actually goes through with getting married. Is everyone really attractive? That's the thing that is like pissing me off about the whole thing. If you're going to have a thing where the premise is, is love blind, like... Everybody is generally within 10 years of each other in age and everyone is conventionally attractive. Mm-hmm. That's what I suspected. Like there isn't a plus sizer in the bunch. I say as a plus size woman being like, hey, you I know, like pictured it already. Yeah, have, I did like, too. The whole cast. Yeah. But by the time you get to the final 10 people, five couples, 10 people, there's one black woman and one Latina and everyone else is white. Oh, well, there, no, sorry. There's, there's a, a Latina and a Latino, but anyway, it's weird to watch. I feel like at any point, any of them should be like, I'm not marrying you on a TV show, but also they seem very infatuated with each other, but also they seem kind of like pressured to get married. Yeah. crazy. It's, it's so weird. Well, how genuine could it be? You know what I mean? It's the whole, you've elected into this thing and then you're being watched. You're in it and then you're just followed every, you're in a reality show and you can't get out of it for a month. And that sounds nuts. Yeah. So it's nuts. I'm, I'm all in, but I'm also ready for it to be over because it's taken up too much of my brain space. Um, another fine program on Netflix is called hashtag cats underscore the underscore movie. M-E-W-V-I-E. <laughs> I'm obsessed with cats, and it's about people who have exploited their cats for fame and fortune on Instagram. Oh. Um, but Just it's, cats. It's only cats. Cats are huge on Insta. It's about cat influencers. Of course, Lil Bub R.I.P. figures prominently. Um, but other people, too, who are very, you know, like, it goes from... Um, you know, the people who just were taking cute snaps of their cats and suddenly like all all of a sudden all these people were following me I to like the much more savvy, like design people who like have really gone all out to to calculate exactly what it takes to be cut to like create a natural cat, a cat celebrity versus the. There's some flies. cats that were discovered at the soda fountain at Woolworths. <laughs> and there are some cats that were created in a lab to be influencers with every possible advantage of lighting and costume and props and professional photographers documenting their every move in order so that their uh, owners can reap the financial benefits. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I feel about it, but I know how my partner feels about uh, any any need I may have to capitalize on our cat's cuteness. And that is keep a lid on it. <laughs> so I will. And I continue to be obsessed with the masked singer. It's the greatest yes, show yes. on television. Never seen it. Oh my God. Um, so good. The premise is that very famous people, like I would say varying degrees of famous from kind of famous to, Oh wow, that's really famous. Put on crazy, like full body mascot outfits and do very elaborate song and dance routines front of an audience and people try to figure out who they are and the best singers get moved on like American Idol style and the weakest singers get weeded out. Hmm. Um, I saw the Tony Hawk episode. (laughs) I had a lady boner for Tony Hawk because he sang the cure and he was like a black goth elephant with (laughs) 
And it was so very. He couldn't sing very and well. And you didn't know who he was. I mean, he sang no. in a British Robert Smith accent. And he, I never in a million years would have, yeah. would yeah. have guessed it was Tony Hawk. But I love that, that was show. Hot. I will tell you that at this stage in the game, I think that, hear me now, believe me later, the frog is Morris Day from Morris Day in the time. Nobody believes me. I feel I think you could confident be right. about it. Rewatch Purple Rain, then watch the frog, then get back to me. I think that Elizabeth Berkeley is uh, the kitty cat and uh, former bust staffer. Eliza pointed out that Elizabeth Berkeley, the actress, has two different colored eyes, and so does the kitty cat. Uh-oh. Interesting, which might be a tell. And um, I'm furious that Patty LaBelle has already been eliminated this season. It's There's no justice in this world that she's not still on that show. Um, so I'm furious about that. And I think the taco might be Martin Short. <laughs> I love the taco. Taco's the best. That's how I feel at the moment about about the masked singer obviously these thoughts will evolve (laughs) and that's what i'm watching it's the best i love it thank you so much to our producers kate moldenauer and jesse karen at more banana productions and thank you of course to our luscious audio engineer logan del fuego (laughs) muy caliente logan uh also to our girl gang at bust magazine you can find me on twitter at emily rems and on the gram at rems emily because some some impostor <laughs> took my actual name. Where can people find you guys on social media? I'm barely on um, Twitter, <laughs> um, but hey, Ms. Amelia, and then on Facebook. Okay. Yeah. And Instagram, but it's private. But it's Will private. you <laughs> I'm not really, I, I know there's a daughter, you know what? I'm not, I'm so bad at socials, but I'm findable with Jennifer Baumgartner. <laughs> um, I'm not even really sure. And feministcamp.com. Yeah. And soapboxinc.com. And Callie is on social media, but she's undercover, so you can't Let find her. Alone. She's on there watching you, but you can't follow her. <laughs> ah, so don't even try. You can email us both at emilyrams at bus.com. Callie W at bus.com. And you can learn more about the show at bus.com slash pop tarts, where you can also sign up for our newsletter or hey, Purchase a subscription to Bust Magazine. Yeah. You'll like it. And also it will help us out. Yes. You want to know like how, what's funding this whole Pop-Tarts operation? The answer (laughs) is subscriptions to Bust Magazine. That's what pays our salary. And hey, be a mensch, buy one. (laughs) Also, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out and we super duper appreciate it. We don't want to be a mystery like the banana. We want everyone to know who we are. (laughs) So please rate and review us. It helps us out. Until next time.